All right, we're doing uh, Elements of Worship number four, and we're going to get into the Lord's Supper and uh, the sacraments today, this afternoon, <clears throat> and I'm going to read from Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your fair, faithful faithfulness every night. On an instrument of ten strings, on the lute, on the harp, with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the work of your hands. O Lord, how great are your works! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. <clears throat> but you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. And we'll stop there. Not any hymns like that, uninspired hymns like that, that I'm aware of. <coughs> We're in the middle of talking about <clears throat> the element of singing praise and worship, and we've gone into a little bit, just, just briefly, we have to talk about exclusive psalmody briefly, and I just want to deal with a couple objections to that, and then we'll get to the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> We looked at one objection, um, which is based on Colossians and Ephesians, and we saw, we saw definitively, we saw that very easily it is to prove that those terms are referring to the Old Testament inspired psalms, not to modern hymns. Another objection is that if Paul was referring to the uninspired psalms in Scripture, then why does he use three separate terms to describe the worship songs? And Gordon Clark and his excellent little commentary on the Westminster Confession. <coughs> I think it's in a footnote or it's in the text. He says, oh, how stupid. Psalmody's so stupid. Why would, why would Paul say psalms, psalms, and psalms? Why would he use three terms to describe one thing? And that's Gordon Clark, who's a brilliant guy, but people make mistakes. Well, the answer to this question is very simple and actually is a strong evidence that Paul had the inspired Psalter in mind. <coughs> a common literary method among the Jews, the Old Testament Jews, when they wanted to emphasize a, a thought was to use what's called a triadic expression. You describe something with three different words that are all essentially synonyms. Here's some examples. Exodus 34, 7, iniquity, transgression, and sin. Deuteronomy 5, 31 and 6, 1. Commandments and statutes and judgments. Matthew twenty two thirty seven with all your heart, soul, and mind. Deuteronomy six five heart, soul, and strength. Acts two twenty two miracles and wonders and signs. Those are all examples of triadic expressions. Very common, very very common, and that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The apostle is simply following the example of Asaph, a Syrian worship leader who used all three terms in Psalm 76 in the Hebrew. Now, God has ordained that the inspired Psalms, the whole 150 Psalms, we have a completed canon now. Scripture is not being written anymore. So God has completed his hymn book for the church, are to be used in public worship by the church until the end of time. While there are some good and uninspired hymns, they are not even close to the inspired psalms as to content or quality. And, this is even more important, they're not prescribed by God 
or authorized by sacred scripture for Christian worship. They are permissible for Christian education and entertainment purposes. Okay, if I get a Christian band together, I've been I've wanted to meet musicians and get a band together, we'll have Christian songs with some Christian lyrics. But they're not going to be used in public worship. They might be used at a nightclub where we're having coffee and donuts. <coughs> and then, of course, the other objection to exclusive psalmody, just briefly, <coughs> is that the Bible does not command us to sing psalms, but only gives us the general command to sing praise. <coughs> this argument was popularized by a good friend of mine in the OPC. He's still a pastor today. He's in his 70s, Stephen Pribble. And his little booklet was first published in the Harbinger uh, in the 90s, early 90s, and then it was picked up and published as a booklet by uh, Greenville uh, Seminary. Uh, they published it as a booklet. Very popular. That's his main argument. Ah, oh, we're not commanded to sing psalms. We're just commanded to sing praise, which is a very general expression, and we can do what we want. It's basically the argument. <clears throat> Besides the fact that the Bible uh, does command, uh, the, the idea that the Bible does not command the singing of psalms is clearly false. Psalm 81, 2, 95, 1 to 2, 98, 4 to 6, 102, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16, etc. Even the more general command to sing praise does not authorize, justify, or approve the use of uninspired materials in the element of singing praise in worship. Why? Why? <clears throat> well, in biblical exegesis, what do you do when you find a very general term? Like praise, or let's say worship. Or uh, God. You know, how do you define God? Well, you've got to go to the particulars. In biblical exegesis, we, do not per we are not permitted to interpret general terms by how they are defined by the heathen or our modern culture. They're to be solely defined by the broad and narrow context of Scripture. Now, the heathen applied the word worship to sacrificing their children to Molech. But we certainly don't regard such abominations as true worship, do we? That's not worship. That's an abomination. <clears throat> How do the Old Testament pious Jews and the Apostolic Church define the general command, sing praise? Well, they look to the Bible to define the meaning and note of the following facts. Number one, the Hebrew Bible calls the book of Psalms the book of praises, Sefer Tehillim. A pious Jew and a first century Christian would immediately associate the command to sing praise with the inspired Psalter, not uninspired hymns, which should not even exist. They come in in the fourth century. It is noteworthy that the term hallelujah, by the way, which means praise Yahweh, only occurs in the book of Psalms. Well, it is in Revelation also, <clears throat> which is based on the Psalms, that, the section. Number two, since the biblical record notes that only those who were prophets or divinely, insp uh, divinely inspired were permitted to write worship songs for the church, pious Jews and careful Christians would not be willing to accept non-canonical materials in worship. 2 Samuel 23.1 uh, and 2, Acts 1, 16 and 17, 1 Chronicles 25, 17, 2 Chronicles 29, 30, 34, 30, etc. For thousands of years, the practice of God was you had to be a prophet to write a worship song. So why would they conclude that this gives us the permission to make up the definition of praise that we want instead of what God wants? <clears throat> this probably explains why uninspired hymn writing did not take root in the church until the 4th century A.D., and then three, note that in the only clear examples of singing praise we find in the whole Bible, the content is divinely inspired. Exodus 15, 20 to 21, Judges 5, Isaiah 5, 1, 26, 1 and following, 
Luke 146 and following, 1 Corinthians 14.26. In the few examples where the nature of the content is not explicitly identified, we are not permitted to assume that the content was uninspired. That's an argument from that's called an argument from silence. What does the Bible say? What can you learn from the broad and narrow context? How to interpret this word? <clears throat> Do we interpret the word love by modern American culture? That would be a disaster. The Bible says love keeps God's law. The Bible says love follows God's will. And it obeys Christ. Well, that's not the modern definition, which is an irrational leap into the dark, an emotional thing. That's not, you know, that's the kind of love that uh, uh, Amnon had for Tamar, which the Bible condemns. <clears throat> Such exegesis and reasoning is not only an argument from silence, but it is an argument which contradicts the teaching of Scripture in dozens of clear passages. Therefore, it violates common accepted exegetical procedures. It is neither wise or biblical to establish the meaning of a worship element on the foundation of exegetical malpractice. And I think the best example of that is how do you define the word God? How do you define the word love? There's, scripture has many general terms. Like the word church, for example. Ecclesia. Yeah, the word ecclesia means a, a general gathering in pagan society. But that's not what the word church means. It's more than simply a calling out a gathering. It's a holy gathering of God's people. So anyway, that's that. And then we have one more thing, with grace in the heart. <clears throat> the confession teaches that we are to sing with grace in the heart, 21.5. Our singing is to flow from the heart regenerated, illuminated, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit who has applied the perfect redemptive work of Christ to us. And the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that our praise to God is through Jesus. Hebrews 13.5 Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You notice he says nothing about using instruments because that was ceremonial. By virtue of Jesus' perfect sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9.15 and 13.12, and also 1 Timothy 2, 5 and following, who is our sole mediator, we are to offer praise to God. Although it is certainly true that our whole lives are to be lived in thanksgiving and gratitude toward God, every moment of every day, even when you're sleeping. In corporate singing, in public worship, this praise is concentrated as we come into God's special presence in a special manner. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, Psalm 50, 23a. Okay, that's, you know, we, we get away from this all of life is worship argument. Yeah, there's a certain sense which all of life is worship, but the Bible makes a clear distinction between uh, service to God, glorifying God in daily living, and concentrated public worship, which is special. Well, there are a number of things to keep in mind regarding singing praises are as follows. First, we are to pay close attention to the inspired words we are singing and make every effort to sing with understanding. Psalm 47, 7, For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. Now, one of the things that caused me to really look at psalm singing very carefully, back in 1978, I first started attending seminary, and um, <clears throat> in God's providence, I attended a uh, little tiny OPC church, that's a psalm singing church that John Murray used to go to. 
Knox OPC in a suburb of Philadelphia. And I'd never sung songs before. I didn't even know what it was, never even heard of it. And I noticed uh, immediately that the quality of the songs was so much better than the Trinity hymnal, which was what I was used to. And I also started paying very close attention to the words. Because not only was the quality way better, but I was actually singing God's word. So I started really focusing and paying attention to the words. And this is before I was even a psalm singer. Even instinctively, I realized this is superior to what I had been doing. And then, of course, I studied the issue thoroughly and uh, did so objectively. And I couldn't find any good arguments for hymnody, uninspired hymnody. <clears throat> no one could praise God, Christ, or the Holy Spirit properly and sincerely. If he does not know anything about who God is or what he has done in Christ. <clears throat> the more we know scripture and solid Christian theology, the more we can sing with understanding and affection. The more you know about what Christ did for you, the more appreciative you ought to be. The more you know about who God is and how wonderful and amazing and great he is, the more you're... It, uh, you should have understanding in your worship, and your worship should be more effectual and more attentive. This truth is one reason that singing inspired songs that are rich in biblical salvific history and doctrine is important. Modern worship songs that are almost devoid of good doctrine is the kind of worship that fits with our anti-doctrinal, ignorant age. I know. I was a charismatic. I know. I was a Baptist dispensationalist. I know. I attended sloppy evangelical churches before I became Reformed. And I didn't grow. I didn't learn doctrine. The worship was horrible. It was very hedonistic. And of course they were antinomian because they didn't teach the law at all. In the Presbyterian churches of old, it was common for the minister to give a psalm explanation before singing. <clears throat> this was done because the psalms are packed with doctrine and the church governors want the people to sing with understanding. Many conservative psalm singing churches still practice this. Now, if you're writing detailed sermons, it's hard to write good explanations and write two good sermons. But perhaps have an elder do that or something. But it should I think it's a good idea. With modern uninspired hymns, explanations are unnecessary because the content is usually very shallow and somewhat childish. Let us meditate on Christ and our precious salvation and the amazing rich content of the Psalter. Psalm 49.3, the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. Psalm 119.169b, give me understanding according to your word. And I just, I challenge people, get a good translation, get the 1650 Psalter, Sing it for six months. If you want to go back to the Trinity hymnal, I'd be surprised. And I would really wonder uh, about your spiritual state. Second, we're to prepare ourselves for praise and compose our minds in a humble, thankful, best frame of mind for the holy task. Note David's words. This is Psalm 108, verse 1. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise, even with all my glory. We need to take heed regarding the holy work we're about to do. It's holy. 
We are about to sing praise to an infinitely holy and righteous God. We are offering thanks to Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead for our justification. Is our heart in the right place? Are our minds fully present and focused without division or distraction? So let us first bring our minds, hearts, and emotions into a biblical, solid, and settled frame before we give praise to the only living and true God, Yahweh. The glory of man is the image of the divine glory, which sets man far above the beasts. We are to praise God with the sanctified, noblest part of our being. Our intellect, will, and emotions are to be fully focused and engaged in this holy work. So obviously worship's not some casual thing like you're going to a coffee shop where you light up a smoke and have a cup of coffee and shoot the breeze with your neighbor. It's, it's got to be a focused thing with understanding. And then third, <clears throat> songs of worship are to be sung joyfully with thanksgiving and love for God. Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all those who re rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those who love your name be joyful in you. And I could have quoted dozens of passages like that. Talk about being joyful. Rejoicing in God. Exalt in the Savior. Leap for joy. We are to take great delight in Christ's salvation and our affection for him, coupled with our appreciation for his salvation, should lead to great joy. And uh, here's Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And here's uh, an old Puritan. Archibald Simpson writes this. He exhorteth them three times, be glad, rejoice, and be joyful. As he made mention of a threefold blessing, so doth he of a threefold joy. Next perceive that this exhortation grows. For the word glad, properly in the original signifieth an inward and hearty joy by the presence or hope of at least of a thing desirable or good. The word rejoice, to express our joy by some outward gesture, sometimes used for dancing, as the hills skip for gladness. And that's Psalm 65, 12. The word be joyful, to cry for, uh, for gladness, as a dumb man's tongue shall sing. This gradation teacheth us that this is the nature of spiritual joy, that it is still that it still increaseth in us by certain degrees until it comes to the perfection of all joy, which is signified by the last word, importing, as it were, a triumph and shouting after victory. I love that quote. We need to be exhorted to rejoice in the Lord. Because our fallen natures are naturally dull, slow, complacent, regarding spiritual matters. If you're watching Star Wars, do you need someone to poke you on the shoulder because you're falling asleep? Do you need someone to remind you to take, pay attention? <laughs> but in the worship of God, our minds easily drift. That's our fallen nature. And it shouldn't be so. You have to fight it. Let us focus on what Jesus has done for us. There is nothing more precious or amazing than Christ's perfect love and salvation. Nothing! That we are to be thankful is emphasized by Scripture. The word thankful or thankfulness occurs at least 30 times in the Psalms alone. 
Psalm 95, 1 to 2. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. So can worship be animated and joyful? Absolutely. It's not good when churches sing nothing but funeral dirges, especially when a song is joyful. By singing the psalms with joy in our hearts, we praise, magnify, glorify, exalt, and bless our Lord and Savior. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. James 5.13 And then fourth, we should make an effort to sing skillfully or competently. Psalm 33.3 Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Now, although the command to play skillfully here, the Hebrew word is yatav, which refers to doing something well, or literal, uh, literally meaning doing something beautifully, is here directed, directly applied to the Levites who played the musical instruments in the temple. The temple worship. First uh, Chronicles 15, 13 to 24, Second Chronicles 29, 25 to 28. All the examples of people playing musical instruments in worship in the Old Testament, every single example, are either the two priests that play the trumpets and or the Levites. There's no regular people playing instruments. It can be applied to psalm singing. Uh, it can, however, be applied to singing praise in public worship today. The melodies that are applied to singing psalms are circumstantial and therefore are only under the general rules or principles of Scripture. Yet they are still important and must be reverent. They must also correspond to the content of the psalm being sung. A joyful song of victory must not sound like a melancholy funeral dirge. In addition, a penitential psalm or song of repentance should have an appropriate tune. There are many excellent melodies that are commonly used with the 1650 Psalter. And once you learn all those melodies, it's super easy to plug in the appropriate melody. Now, I know some modern psalters, the RPCNA has notes written in for, and there's split leaf 6050 psalters that have notes that you can turn, flap over and turn over. That's fine. Uh, my, my problem with the modern RP psalter, this 1973 one was better, but the modern one, they're trying to make the psalms look like hymns and even give them like titles like hymns. And they're putting Christmas tunes and things in there to, to satisfy their declension and their covenant breaking. In that they do have, a lot of churches have Christmas services. So let us worship God with beautiful, appropriate melodies sung with competence or skill. Okay, now we turn to the sacraments. We'll just start this. <clears throat> the Confession of Faith also speaks of the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ. And once again, that's 21.5. Confession of Faith 21.5. The word sacrament comes from sacro, ere, to make sacred or for sacred use. And it refers to two special sign rituals. Baptism, Matthew 28, 19, Mark 16, 16, and the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 26, Mark 14, 22 to 25, Luke 22, 17 to 20, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, which have been instituted directly by Jesus Christ. Through sensible signs, they represent the perfect salvation of Christ and the benefits of his continued presence and mediation. 
they strengthen the faith of all those in the covenant of grace and oblige them to further obedience or covenant faithfulness. They distinguish Christians from the world, strengthen a believer's faith, and reveal our allegiance to God. The Lord's Supper also shows our love, commitment, communion, and dedication to each other in Christ's body. So it has a horizontal and a vertical aspect. Of course, baptism does too, in that the parents promise to bring up the child in the admonition of the Lord, and the congregation promises to help the, the parents and the child grow up in the admonition of the Lord. Now, the outward sensible sign used, defined and interpreted according to the Word of God, points to an inward spiritual salvific realities. The two, and only two, New Testament sacra sacraments replace all the Old Testament ceremonial rituals that have been abrogated by Jesus' death and resurrection. They most closely resemble the Old Testament sign of circumcision, an in initiatory rite. If you were an adult and you were converted to Yahweh, the true God, and you were a male, you had to be circumcised to join the God's people. And if you were a covenant child, an infant, born to covenant parents, you receive the initiatory rite. Very, the same thing with baptism. And of course, the Passover, which was a continued sign of Christ's atonement and saving benefits. That's gone now. It was a bloody rite. It's gone. Now we have the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are means of grace that have a number of things in common with the Word of God. This is going to help you understand the sacraments, because most people have a foggy understanding. What do they have in common with the Word of God? What do they not have in common with the Word of God? That will really help you understand what the sacraments are. Number one, both, we're talking about the Word of God and the sacraments, were instituted by God, or given by God. Number two, both point men to the person and work of Christ. Three, both can only benefit the receiver if they are accompanied by faith. You say, well, obviously an infant can't have faith. Well, he will, the benefit comes when he gets faith. Sometimes they're regenerated before they're baptized, sometimes they're regenerated after they're baptized. Four, both are applied to the heart of man by the Holy Spirit. Five, both the word preached and the Lord's Supper are public ordinances that are to be conducted by a minister of the gospel. The administration of the sacraments, this is a footnote, has always been restricted to ordained ministers of the gospel in all Protestant and Reformed churches. Now, I'm sure there's modern ones today that don't, but they used to be. And this is because, number one, the responsibility to baptize was given to Christ-ordained ministers, the apostles, in Matthew 28:19. Every example of believers being conducted, of baptisms being conducted in the New Testament, is by a minister of the word. Of course, there's the Old Testament baptism of John, who was a prophet, a preacher. Then you have the baptisms conducted by apostles, evangelists, and teaching elders. You never have baptisms by anyone other than a teaching elder in the Bible. No examples. What about Philip? Well, Philip was an evangelist. He was a preacher. Two, the elders of the local congregation are responsible for what takes place in public worship. This responsibility includes examining who will come to the Lord's table, discerning what constitutes a credible profession of faith in new converts, and speaking to Christian parents who are presenting a covenant infant for baptism. 
3. The elders have spiritual oversight over the sacraments and that Christ has given them the keys. That is the responsibility of church discipline. The Lord's Supper is not to be observed in an unworthy or antinomian manner. Baptism carries with it certain covenantal responsibilities and requirements. Number four. The worship of the infinitely holy and righteous God is to be conducted in a decent, orderly manner. This requirement also requires careful oversight. All of these reasons explain why historically churches have always had a strict elder oversight with the minister of the word handling the elements. So there's a number of reasons. And how are Christians supposed to behave when it comes to divine warrant? If there's going to be a mistake, we err on the side of caution. We don't make arguments from silence. We don't base practices on silence. We do what the scripture authorizes and we leave it at that. It will be helpful also to note the differences. So we notice the similarities between the word and the sacraments. This is where the rubber meets the road when we notice the differences, because they are different. Number one, the word is a primary means of grace, while <clears throat> the other means of grace, including the sacraments, are secondary. And this point is true because the word defines and regulates the sacraments. Apart from... Uh, Understanding the word, the sacraments are meaningless rituals. When you're playing with the kids in the backyard and you're sprinkling them with a hose, is that baptism? No. Everything has to be defined by scripture. If you have a glass of wine and a piece of bread, are you having the Lord's Supper? No. Everything is defined by scripture. You can't understand the sacraments without first understanding what the Bible says about the sacraments. The sacraments are dependent on the word to increase faith and sanctification. But the word is not dependent on the sacraments. While the word can exist and is also complete without the sacraments, the sacraments are never complete without the word. Do you understand that? It's a very good thing to keep in mind. It'll guard you against the heresy of the federal vision and the sacramentalism of the federal vision. The visible sign in conjunction with the word can stimulate faith and devotion. It is an aid to the word, but has no mystical power by itself. For this reason, Reformed churches do not allow the Lord's Supper to be served apart from the word and words of explanation. Okay, when we were, when I was in Philadelphia going to seminary, we had a, I, had a, I would preach at old folks' homes in, in, the, in the black part of town. Of course, the seminary was in the black part of West Philadelphia. They've moved out of there now. It's too dangerous. And uh, these liberal Methodist female ministers would come in there, and they just, hey, who wants communion? They had a cart. And they would just be giving communion to anybody, whether you're an atheist, whoever. That's not communion. Number two. The word of God is absolutely necessary to produce saving faith. The new birth in the broad sense of the term, 1 Peter 1.23, and obtain salvation. A person can be regenerated and saved without the sacraments. Doesn't mean they're not important, but the word is absolutely necessary. The sacraments are not absolutely necessary to salvation. And here, the proof of that is the thief on the cross who was saved by Jesus without the benefit of Christian baptism. Luke 23, 43. 
Now, the older Episcopal high church sacramentalists were so, well, and some Lutherans, were so bothered by this because they teach the necessity of baptism as a regenerating tool. Uh, they were so upset by this that they came up with a crazy, absurd notion that the malefactor was baptized by the water that came out of Jesus' heart when he was pierced by the spear of the Roman soldier. That's actually a pretty common interpretation among sacramentalists. <laughs> it's crazy, but think about it. Besides the fact that the thief was not close enough to Jesus for this to happen, you know, he'd be at least at least eight feet away. What, is it going to spray like a fire hose across, you know? One must also assume that God accepts a non-Trinitarian baptism conducted by a heathen soldier. Stabbing Jesus in the side was not a baptism. False theology always has a tendency to corrupt biblical exegesis. In addition, the church existed in the wilderness for 40 years without the sacraments, Joshua 5, 5 to 12. The church cannot exist at all without the Bible. What do the people of God have to do when they enter the promised land? Every male had to be, had to be circumcised. God killed off the first generation for their unbelief. They died and their bodies rotted in the wilderness. But that second generation, some were in their late 30s, almost 40 years old. Well, some would have been over 40 because they would have been children. All those men had to be circumcised when they entered the promised land because it hadn't been done in the wilderness. Does that mean God's people didn't exist during those 40 years? Of course not. They did exist. The visible sign in conjunction with the word can stimulate faith and devotion. It is an aid to the word, but has no mystical power by itself. For this reason, Reformed churches do not allow the Lord's Supper to be served apart from the word and words of explanation. Two, the word of God is absolutely necessary to produce saving faith, the new birth, the broad sense, etc. I read that. Then three, the word is used by the spirit both to produce and strengthen faith, while the sacraments only strengthen faith. The sacraments are not regenerating or converting ordinances, but are used to further progressive sanctification in those who already have faith in Christ and his word. Now, baptism, as an initiatory rite, sets the child of a believing parent, a parent or parents apart to serve Christ and be in the visible church, 1 Corinthians 7.14. But without faith, at some point in that child's life, I've met people that were raised Christians. This is true. A guy, he was not converted until his late 60s. He, he was raised a Christian in a strict Christian family. He apostatized as a teenager, left the family, left the church, and was converted in his late 60s. So he ended up having faith. Most of the children that I know that were raised strict Christians that, that don't apostatize uh, they don't even know a time when they were converted. They always believed. But some have a conversion time. Some do not. Without faith at some point in the child's life, it does not contribute to real progressive sanctification, only a greater judgment. Number three, the word read and preached is to be addressed to all men, calling upon them to repent and believe, while the sacraments are only to be administered to people who are in the visible church. Okay, once again, it's not a converting ordinance. The word is open to all while the sacraments are for God's family alone. 
And then four, the word of God conveys truth directly to man's mind through written propositional form. It's words. You can read it. You can hear it. Read. It is self-authenticating, self-attesting, and self-interpreting. Only Scripture can infallibly interpret Scripture. That's why one of the great rules of biblical interpretation is clearer portions of Scripture are to deal with the more obscure portions on the same topic. Scripture is to interpret Scripture. They call it the analogy of Scripture. <clears throat> the sacraments are visible sensual signs that is moving pictures, sight, sound, feel, taste, spiritual, real-life illustrations that when defined by the word more powerfully and efficaciously stimulate thought and move the heart and thus are wonderful, blessed, effective means of grace when accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's a lot of material in just one page, but I want you to understand. I've, I boiled down a bunch of teaching, just a little short things. That I hope that gives you the, the difference between the word and the, and the sacraments. Now let's look at, we'll just look at one, one more thing and then we'll stop. I don't know how my time's going, but the sacraments is signs. The sacraments are signs because they are perceived by the senses of the body especially by sight. The bread broken, the wine poured out, the pouring or sprinkling of water are visible symbols. The eating of bread, the drinking of wine, and the pouring of the water on the body are visible actions that are felt and sensed that in conjunction with the word's meaning are profound means of grace that seal the certainty of what these things represent to our minds. Because they are sensible signs, they are very effective in stimulating our regenerate consciousness and confirming our faith. They're vivid. The use of senses in such a manner is especially effective in moving our hearts. These appointed signs are effective because they point beyond themselves to the spiritual realities they represent. Christ's precious blood was poured out as a vicarious sacrifice for sin. We feed on Jesus' perfect salvation by faith. Through the Spirit, we partake of all the aspects of a saving work. Expiation, propitiation, justification, reconciliation, redemption, sanctification. We are taught by the sensible signs that our redemption and all the spiritual nourishment that we need for sanctification, covenant faithfulness and perseverance comes from the efficacy of our Lord's death and resurrection. So I hope that helps you understand the Lord's Supper better. We are also instructed about the unity of the body of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Communion is a meal where believers are to be sitting around tables facing each other, partaking from the one loaf and drinking from the one cup. Now, the one loaf is broken into pieces, yes, but it comes from one piece. Luke 22, 17, Matthew 26, 27, Mark 14, 23, 1 Corinthians 11, 25. Every single account of the Lord's Supper says that Christ gave him one cup and the one cup was distributed to all the apostles. The communion of love, fellowship, unity, and spiritual kinship is recognized and stimulated. The Holy Supper is solemn in that we are looking at Jesus once for all, bloody suffering and death. Yet it also is a great celebratory meal, for we are looking at Jesus' glorious victory over Satan, sin, and death. 
So on the one hand, it's solemn. On the other hand, it's a great celebration. And the Bible talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb. And it talks about the great wedding feast in the book of Revelation. Moreover, Jesus is spiritually present with us as a corporate body in a special way. Therefore, we not only commune with each other as brothers in the Lord, but we are also communing with the risen Savior. The sprinkling with water in baptism points to regeneration and the washing away of the believer's person's sins. It corresponds to the Old Testament rite of circumcision, which symbolized the new birth or the removal of the foreskin of one's heart. Deuteronomy 10.16, 36, Jeremiah 4.4, Romans 2.28-29, Philippians 3.3, and Colossians 2.11. It points us to the cleansing blood of Jesus' death, which is the efficacious source, foundation, and power behind our regeneration and reception of the Holy Spirit. It signifies the regenerating power of the Spirit on our hearts, our union with Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and all the benefits of the new covenant. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. 1 Peter 3, 20-21, Acts 2, 38, 22-16, Colossians 2, 11, etc. And we'll stop there. Uh, so Lord willing, we'll look at the sacraments as seals next week. But they're signs. And that's what they're signs of. They're profound. They're amazing. They, cannot, they should not be neglected. Now, when sacramentalists talk about the efficacy of the sacraments and that they always carry out what they uh, are supposed to cause in a kind of abracadabra manner, a mystical manner, uh, they're denying the necessity of faith and they're denying and they're denying the efficacy of the power of the Holy Spirit. If somebody is supposedly regenerated when they're baptized as a baby, which is what the Federal Visionists teach, and that's what the High Church people teach, that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, and yet they apostatize and go to hell, uh, then you have to redefine the power of the Holy Spirit as not affecting what it's supposed to, and you have to redefine uh, the efficacy of Jesus' death and resurrection, which always results in victory. It never results in failure. That's why sacramentalism is so unbiblical and so dangerous, even though it's very popular. And the people that defend it, the federal visionists, have to come up with a system that's completely irrational, where they say there's two kinds of election, one that works, one that doesn't work. <laughs> there's two kinds of regeneration, one that doesn't work and one that works. But uh, you can listen to my sermons on Doug Wilson's book and get a, a fuller picture of that. But we'll continue this next week. I hope this is helpful. You know, we need to know what the sacraments are. We need to know what the elements of worship are. And it'll help us be more, pay more attention, be more serious, and benefit more from what we're doing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Christ's work. Everything centers around your dear son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect redemptive work. We thank you for it. We ask you, Lord, that you would bend our hearts with the power of your Holy Spirit to appreciate your son, Jesus Christ, and thank him and worship as we ought. And thank you for sending him. Thank your Holy Spirit for applying what he has done. Help us, Lord, to be obedient, covenantally faithful. Forgive us for our many sins. Cause us to walk uprightly and be covenantally faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.